Our scripture passage today is Ephesians 2, 11 to 22, which is on page 950 of the Black Bible you received as you entered. Before we read, Ron Miller will lead us in a prayer for illumination. Dear Father in heaven, thank you that we can gather here today. Thank you for this church and the way you have blessed us. Thank you for the Bible. Please bless the preaching of your word today. Help us to listen and apply it to our lives. May your Holy Spirit open our eyes, our ears, and our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Ephesians 2, 11 to 22. So then, remember that at one time you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he is our peace. In his flesh he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall, that is, the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of the two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. This is the word of the Lord. A few weeks ago, I said in a sermon something like this. It's the responsibility of every Christian to offer his or her gifts for the service of other Christians. And I got a text the next day from my friend Matthew saying, how do I do that? So that led to some conversation. And I invited Matthew to collaborate with me a little bit in, in meditating on this passage that we just heard. So he's going to give a piece both before and after. And Matthew, can you come up and give your first piece now? And the words, there's some little piles of paper at the end of every row. They have the words to this first untitled piece and then the piece after, which is called Song of Praise. So if you, if you have a, pe a paper, if you're on the end of the row, would you pass them down to your neighbors? 
Yeah, go ahead, Doc. We'll get it. My check. My check. All right. All right. <clears throat> and we were far off like long shot guesses from the water that quenches our thirst. And by your blood poured out like fertilizer, we were brought near enough to be nurtured from a thorn into a flower. Our sharp edges now beget blossoms so that we, ex-foreigners, now citizens, built up as tabernacles, dwelling places of the spirit, can turn our eyes to him as we settle our search. You have become our home like a nest is to birds. And yes, yes, I have found what quenches our thirst. Your word is peace and your promise is to be believed. Selah. Sylvia has copies of the sermon manuscript if you want to get it, and feel free to take a copy of Matthew's words with you as well. Dear friends of Jesus Christ, it's quite an identity, friends of Jesus Christ, but that's what he calls us. Walls have been a big part of history. Think about it, the walls of Jericho, the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem, the walls of Troy, the Great Wall of China. Walls have punctuated history. Even during my lifetime, when I was five years old, almost literally overnight, on August 13th, 1961, it's called Barbed Wire Night in Germany, the communist East German government surrounded West Berlin with a barbed wire fence. How many people here remember that? It's pretty dramatic. Within three months, it was becoming a concrete and steel barrier. A lot of people died trying to cross it. A barrier between what I grew up calling the free west and the part of the world that was closed off behind what we always called the Iron Curtain or the Bamboo Curtain in China. In 1989, maybe more of you remember this, protests on both sides of the Berlin Wall began to bring the wall down. It took three years to dismantle it, but it's gone. You can find fragments of it all around the world now, usually as monuments of, to human freedom. How many of you have seen a piece of the Berlin Wall somewhere? It's pretty chilling to just stand there and look at it and think about what it was and what it is now. History, of course, always has its ironies, its disappointments, and its outright tragedies. Here's one irony that stays with me all the time, an irony that's unfolding in the history that we're living out in our own lifetime. The land of the free and the home of the brave now seems to need a wall, at least in the eyes of some people, a wall that stretches from sea to shining sea. And for a person who's lived as long as I have, it's really hard to reconcile the American worldview of my childhood. Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free with the American worldview today. It's confusing. What is our identity as Americans? What is our calling? What is our place in history? I don't think we know anymore. I'm not sure we ever did, but I know that we don't know anymore. 
I don't want to focus on that brokenness, but I do want to acknowledge it. It's just one example of the deep, deep brokenness of the world. What I really want to talk about is our identity, our calling, and our place in history as Christians, how we live in the midst of this brokenness. I realize that for most of us, it's hard to separate that from the fact that we are either Americans or else living in the United States of America, but we have to be able to separate those two identities. Christians in all times and all places have always needed to be able to do that. Our Christian identity, our Christian calling, our place in history as Christians is always primary. Everything else has to be secondary to that. It's our Christian faith, our Christian identity that defines us. The passage we heard this morning is all about these things, identity and calling and history. It starts with a very historical word, remember. That's what Paul says. Remember who you are. Remember where you came from. And remember where you're going. It seems a little bit weird to say remember where you're going. Remember the future. But think about it. The idea of a calling always has the sense of a future you're being called into. A place and a reality you're going towards. That's why remembering is always so important for us Christians. It's not just remembering the past, it's also remembering the future, the place to which we are called, and connecting both of those to the present moment, living it out in the present moment. And our most important and defining act of communal remembering, the Eucharist, where we come face to face with Jesus. What do we proclaim as the central mystery of our faith? You probably know it by heart. Christ has died. That's the past. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. Think about that as we take communion later this morning. Our text begins with remembering. It begins with an invitation, a command to remember where most of us started out our journey with Jesus. It reminds us that at the beginning we were not with Jesus. Listen. So then remember... That at one time you Gentiles by birth, called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember, repeats that word, that you were at that time, and listen to these hammer blows, these nails, without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And without God in the world. That's quite an identity. That's quite a history. And it's very much a history of hostility. I think we really, if we search our, if we look around our culture a little bit, we'll see how big a part hostility plays in our common culture. There's, there's a lot of derogatory and hostile names that people have for one another, people that we consider alien or other. Some of those names I can't even say from the pulpit because they're so shaming and so shameful to the people who use those words. My ancestors were called things like Pollock, Chuck, 
Rod, DP, and we were the butt of a thousand jokes in this country. I grew up with that, and that's nothing compared to what some of our ancestors and some of us have faced in this country, maybe as recently as last week or this morning. There's a long list of ethnic slurs on Wikipedia if you're really interested, if you don't know. Paul uses an ethnic slur in this passage. Uncircumcision sounds kind of like a technical or even scientific word, right? Rhymes with precision. In reality, it's a corruption of the Greek word for foreskin. The piece of human flesh that is cut off and cast away in the circumcision that happens when a Jewish child is eight days old or that doesn't happen for people who are uncircumcised and they carry that thing around with them all their lives. Jews of that time referred to their Gentile neighbors collectively and contemptuously as foreskins. Akrobustia. It's a slur. Believe me, the Gentiles through the ages have given it back. They've more than returned the favor by means of the names that we've given to Jews and the things we've done to them. My point is that this hostility is real and enduring. I don't know if you've read Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates, but one of the sentences that just sticks in my mind is that racism is a thing. It's not just an idea. It's a thing of flesh and bone. It damages organs. This is the kind of hostility that Paul is plugging into. And if Paul were writing to his fellow Jews, he might take a different approach here. But he's writing to Gentiles. And he's not writing to put them down. He's just writing to to change their thinking. He wants them to remember that they were not only alienated from the Jews, but they were alienated from the God of the Jews, who happens to be the only true God. They had no connection to the Messiah. They had no citizenship in Israel, these, these were lo- words that were just as loaded back then as they are today. They were strangers to the promises of God. They had no hope. They were literally God-less. Atheoi en cosmo, without God in the world. That's quite an identity. It's quite a history. And for most of us, that's our history. One of the most blessed words in the Bible... Is the next word in our passage. It's just a little word. It's a conjunction. But. But. It changes everything. It's the second significant time it comes up in Ephesians 2. Jim covered the first one last week. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. But. God, who is rich in mercy, out of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions and trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Somebody should say hallelujah. And once again, in the second half of this chapter, here's what Paul says. You were without hope. You were without God in the world. But now, but now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And listen to what Paul says. Actually, don't just listen. Maybe even close your eyes and with your imagination, see the picture Paul is painting. For he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one 
and has broken down the dividing wall that is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of two, thus making peace, and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death that hostility through it. And if you want to talk about irony, making peace through the violence of the cross, but not a violence inflicted on others, a violence he took on himself. Can you feel what that means? What the effect of that is? You are on the outside. You Gentiles, most of the people Paul was writing to and most of the people I'm talking to, you are on the wrong side of the wall. But God demolished the wall and abolished the curse of the law that separated us not only from other people, but from God. This wall isn't just in this plane, it's in this plane, and it's gone. And this passage doesn't just give us a sense of healing a tragic history, fixing a broken past. It also gives us a sense of calling into a future where we are connected with Christ, where we do have a citizenship in Israel, the people of God, where we will receive the promises of God, where we do have hope, where we will be with God in the world. Listen to more of this passage. So then... Changed identity, right? So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with the Messiah Jesus himself as the cornerstone in him. The whole structure is joined together and grows together into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built spiritually into a dwelling place for God. You hear the inclusion in that? You also are being built into this thing which is a dwelling place for God. We can't just listen to this. We need to see the picture Paul's painting with his words, with the eyes and the hearts of our imagination. God has not only, this is genius and this is glory. This is our God. He's not only broken down the wall of alienation. He's not only committed an act of demolition, but he's taking the wreckage and the rubble of that wall and of a humanity that is alienated from God and alienated from itself and building up that mess into something that is both beautiful and useful. God's building a house, a place to live, and we are the stones God is fitting together to make that building, to build his everlasting place of residence, his dream house. This house and home of God. God's dream house is not a building. It's not a temple or a church or a mosque or an ashram or anything like that. It's a reconciled people. So this is where I need to ask, do we get that? Have we understood that? Have we been inspired by that vision? God says, I have a dream. 
Do we understand God's dream? Are we empowered by that sense of identity and calling? And do we have that holy sense of historical direction out of a broken and alienated past into a glorious and reconciled future? Or did God take away the wall and open a glorious freedom to us only to have us act like the wall's still there? Here's the thing. What freedoms, I wonder, are we failing to embrace? What people, I have to wonder, are we failing to embrace? What reconciliation and restoration and mutual edification are possible for us, but we fail to embrace those possibilities? We have to walk out of the prison cell. God has broken the walls. God has opened the doors, but we need to cross the barrier that's not there anymore, to go over the boundary lines. We have to do the work God has called us to of being reconciled to one another and living into the possibilities that God has opened for us. Anybody know what an invisible fence is? You have a perimeter around your yard, and the dog has a collar. And if the dog gets too close to the perimeter, the, the collar sends an electrical current into the dog, shocks the dog. I don't know if it's humane or not. Sometimes, though, I think we're like dogs. We've been, we've been trained to stay behind this barrier. And even when the power to the fence has been killed, and even if someone tells us that it's been killed, we just stay in the yard, our own yard. We don't explore the possibilities that we're free to explore. And this applies to all kinds of ways in which we're separated from one another as human beings. It certainly applies to race, and you can't escape the racial dimensions of this text. But it applies to every other kind of alienation as well. It calls us across economic boundaries, which is another very hard boundary to cross. It calls us across ethnic boundaries. It calls us across political and ideological and even theological boundaries. And it calls us across the boundaries. I want everyone to hear this. It calls us across the boundaries created by our own acts, our own behavior towards one another, even in a room as small as this one. Think about that for a moment. What walls between you and other people have you been content to just sit there? What wall isn't really there, but you'll never go on the other side of it? What I'm talking about is a little scary. And what I'm talking about takes a good bit of time and effort. It takes an investment might be easier to stay confined in our familiar spaces. But that won't make anyone's dream come true. That won't make God's dream of a reconciled people being built together into a house made of living stones come true. We can't hide behind our self-constructed identities. We can't stay in our small circles of friends. We can't hide behind our busy schedules and our overcommitted weeks. 
You can't say I'm too busy to join a household and get to know my fellow Christians. You can't say I don't have time to get to know Christians outside my own church community. At least not if you want to make God's dreams come true. But here's what you'll find if you walk into the freedom God is offering us. We are not without God in the world. God is out there. And we need to be where God is because God is with His people. God's people are everywhere and so is God. That's where God lives, in the midst of His people. And if you only know the small circle of people that you're with all the time, you don't know God as well as you could. That's the hope that Paul offers us in this passage, the vision of participating in building God's dream house. Let me lead you in prayer. Then I'm going to ask you, we're going to bring the kids up from downstairs while we sing Beneath the Cross of Jesus, a song of, a powerful song of what this passage is about, reconciliation through the cross, and then we'll sit and Matthew will lead us again, and then we'll share the Lord's Supper together. But let's pray. Father, I think we love your dream. I think we're afraid of your dream and what it asks of us. But I know that we need to embrace it if we're going to receive that inheritance that you have promised us in Christ and that you have already given us a down payment on by sending your Holy Spirit to live in us and among us. Give us courage. Give us vision. Give us a heart for your heart. Help us, as the old prayer says, to love what you command and to desire what you promise. We pray these things through the Messiah, Jesus, who makes us one. Amen.